Well, good afternoon, everybody. I want to uh, invite you now to take your Bibles and to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, where we'll spend the next bit of our time together. Uh, this is actually the second to last parable that we'll cover in this series on the parables that we've enjoyed this fall. Parables, of course, being stories or analogies Jesus used to help us understand what his kingdom is like. Jesus knew better than anyone I'm aware of just how powerful a good story can be to make a point. And, and week by week, as we've looked at each of these parables, we've seen him making surprising point after surprising point about what it is he came to do, what it is he came to offer to those who will trust in him. And I don't know of a more shocking parable than the one that we've come to tonight. This one's known as the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14 is where we're going to be tonight. This week, uh, I, uh, I read somewhere, I don't know, in the middle of my news intake, a sort of hot off the presses item. Apparently the friends of the real Prince Charles are not very happy about the fictional Prince Charles from the Netflix runaway hit series, The Crown. And, and, and just for the record, I don't blame them. Whether or not the fictional version of Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, looks anything like the real version, none of us will ever know. But there's no question that the fictional version is no Prince Charming. And whatever sort of fairy tale this series represents, he is beginning to look a lot more like the villain than the hero. And those of you who have seen this latest season of the Netflix show know exactly what I'm talking about. You're definitely not supposed to like this guy. But, but, but I'll say, even for that, setting that aside, I'll say this for him. I'll say this for the character, at least, like him or not. He is an absolutely believable, profound, and I would say even tragic example of the deeply human drive for validation. This man is driven at every turn in his story by a craving for validation. He wants his life to count for something. He wants to make a mark of his own, one that won't be hidden underneath the shadow of his family. And whether he mostly wants to prove himself to his parents, which he certainly does, or win the hearts of his people or whatever else he's after, at every turn, he's looking to show that he's actually worth something. And he's looking for anyone and everyone to tell him that he is. It's a kind of character that, honestly, if you can't see yourself in him, I think you're probably just not looking hard enough. This, this drive for validation, to, to, to count for something, is a deeply human, a, a basically human drive. And it's actually something the Bible talks a lot about. The word most often used in the scriptures for this basic human drive is the drive for justification. Justification is a kind of validation. It's a statement made about your life. It's a statement something like worthy, approved of, what you're supposed to be, righteous. And honestly, from the perspective of the Bible, this is something we, we ought to crave. We should want to, to have lives that measure up, lives that, that count for something. The question isn't whether or not we should look for validation somewhere. The, the question, the only question that matters is where we'll look for it. And I think the reason that people love to hate Prince Charles so much, at least the fictional version of Prince Charles, 
is that in this most recent season of The Crown, they've done a tremendous job showing the ugliness. And I think the better way to say it is, is the powerful destructiveness for you and for everybody around you if you look for validation in the wrong places. This guy's a tortured soul who in some ways, many ways, tortures those who are closest to him. Friends, the parable that we've come to tonight is about this problem and a far better way. It's about justification and where you can find it. And like so many of these wonderful parables that we've considered together week after week throughout this fall, this is a parable with an either or. Two characters, one representing each representing two very, very different postures. On, on the one hand, we're going to see a dead-end path that every one of us will be tempted to take if we're left on our own. And on the other hand, we'll see a path to life that's open to every one of us if we'll take it in faith. So, so following these characters one at a time, I want to walk you down these two paths, show where they lead, and show the only path to life. I want to begin by reading the few verses that we'll consider together this evening. And I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I do that. I'm going to pick up in Luke chapter 18 uh, and verse 9. This is the word of the Lord to us this evening. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I simply want us to consider together this evening, first, the deadly trap of self-reliance, and second, the life-giving freedom of God's mercy. The deadly trap of self-reliance and the life-giving freedom of God's mercy. The deadly trap of self-reliance comes through loud and clear in the picture of the Pharisee. Luke tells us right away in verse 9 who this story is meant to help. Jesus told the parable, he says, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who treated other people with contempt. That's a combo. That's a package deal. It goes together hand in glove and it, and, and it comes out crystal clear in, in, in the picture of the Pharisee. I want to show you. On the surface of it, this Pharisee, he's entered the temple to pray and at first... He opens his mouth. It sounds almost as if he's going to give what sounds like a, a Thanksgiving psalm. I thank you, God, he says. And there's a form for that. The psalms are full of Thanksgiving 
to, to God. And, and almost always this phrase is followed by some sort of sweet truth about him. We're waiting now at this point for the Pharisee to explain God's deliverance of him or something about his steadfast love that endures forever or his faithfulness that reaches to the sky, something like that. We're used to these psalms, but no. This guy's not even focused on God at all. I thank you, God, he says. And then launches into what really amounts to a list of qualifications. This guy's basically just going over his resume. If I might, first of all, direct your attention to the what I've not done section. I haven't extorted anyone. I haven't been unjust. I haven't committed adultery or anything like that. Now, let's go over what I have done. Moving on, the next section on my resume. I I fasted twice a week. That's not even required. I'm over and above. I give tithes of everything I get. He says, God, I thank you. He means, God, you're welcome. Here's a man who trusts in himself that he's righteous. He's confident that he measures up. He believes. He stands in good place. And do you see how he gets there? You see how he can be so sure that this list of qualifications measures up? It only works, at least for now, because he treats other people with contempt. Thank you, God, he says, that I'm not like other men, especially not that tax collector over there, not that guy. This Pharisee knows who he is by comparing himself to who he's not. He knows he's good enough because he knows he's better than them. He measures up because he stands taller than they do. That's how he knows who he is. That's where his validation comes from. He trusts in himself that he's righteous because he treats others with contempt. I wonder if you don't see more of yourself in this man than you'd like to. Well, I sure do. Some of us are religious rule followers like this guy. That's how we get our validation. But I wonder, even if, even if organized religion isn't really your thing, I wonder if you can still see your own heart reflected here somehow. In this drive to measure up, or better, the drive to rise above. I think this drive shows up at every stage of our lives. You kids out there in school, don't you know what it feels like to get that, 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 that warm satisfaction of seeing that you finished your work quicker than your friends next to you? Or maybe what it feels like to see one of the other kids get pulled out of the classroom because they've been misbehaving and know, I never, not once has that happened to me. This same drive shows up in the classic midlife crisis that most of us will have at one level or another. Where you, where you take stock of your life, you think, here's where I've come. I wonder where I'm going. Is this enough? Is this what I'm supposed to be? Is this good? I mean, how do you know? You look around. You see what that guy brings home in a year. You see where he sleeps at night. You see what their family is up to. And even at the end of your life, Even those who are living in their final years can compare themselves based on how successful their kids are 
where their grandkids are all church-going Christians or how much they're leaving behind for their family when they're gone. And as if we needed more evidence of how powerful this drive can be, I wonder if you can see it as I do behind all the deep and bitter divisions that we've been living with this past year. The drive to be on the right side of COVID and how to handle it, to be on the right side of racial justice issues, to the right side of partisan politics, all of this. It's a drive towards righteousness. It's, it, it's coming from this deep desire to measure up. And you can tell that that's what's behind it, friends. You can tell that's what's behind it because it depends on contempt for other people on the other side. Behind all that prophetic clarity blaring on Twitter and whatever version may be stirring in our hearts, can you hear it? I wonder, can, can you hear the unspoken prayer? Thank you, God, that I'm not like these, these other men. Friends, we may fill our resumes with different kinds of qualifications than what this Pharisee brought with him into the temple. But the main purpose of this parable is to warn us against the justification that comes from how your performance stacks up against others. Pick your qualifications. Plug and play. The purpose of the parable is don't do that. Don't look for validation in how your performance measures up against everybody else's because that, friends, is a deadly trap. Let me push this one step further. I'm going to give you three reasons it's such a deadly trap. Don't do it for these three reasons. Here's what will happen. If, if, if you base your validation, your sense of self-worth on how your performance stacks up against others, this is what you'll find. You'll find, first of all, that your self-conscience will, or, or confidence, rather, will always be fragile. When your self-worth depends on how you stack up against other people, that's only going to work for you so long as no, somebody better never shows up. And sooner or later, though, the reality is, sooner or later, they will. Somebody prettier will walk into the room. Somebody will be smarter than you are. Somebody will have more money or cuter kids. Somebody's going to volunteer more of their time in the community than you ever have. Somebody's going to do your thing at the office better than you can do it. This isn't a maybe. It's just a matter of when. This is one of the things, one of the, one of the basic human experiences that shows up so clearly in this season of, of the crown. Charles is a guy with everything. He's literally waiting to be king. He's famous all over the world. He's got all these great uniforms with, with buttons and ribbons and everything attached onto him. He, he's got like 10 castles at least. I don't know. He's loaded. And for at least a little while in his adult years depicted in this season, he seems pretty confident about himself until he marries a woman who sparkles more brightly than he does. Until he goes on an international tour that's meant to be his big coming out party, his big introduction to the world, and at every stop they scream her name and not his. And when she doesn't show up, they boo him and he comes unglued. As long as your validation, your self-worth comes from how you stack up against other people, your self-confidence will always be fragile. And just as I've just mentioned from this, 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 this season of the, of the crown, Eventually, your relationships will be poisoned. That's the second part of this deadly trap. Not just will your self-confidence be fragile, your relationships will be poisoned. 
If your self-worth depends on comparison to other people, you're gonna have to hide things about yourself that you're not proud of. What friendship can truly thrive while you're hiding? And so long as your self-worth depends on comparison to other people, you're gonna need to highlight the flaws in them that make you feel better. And whether this ever makes it to the surface or stays deep down inside you, it will poison your relationships. It'll undermine the things that are crucial for any healthy friendship. When they do well, you're going to have a real hard time celebrating with them. And when they slip and fall some way, you'll have a real hard time empathizing. Because when they do well, you'll take it personally. When they do poorly, you'll climb one step up that ladder. And either way, poison. Your self-confidence will always be fragile and your relationships will be poisoned. And friends, as bad as those two things are, they're nothing compared with the third part of this deadly trap. Most importantly of all, if you get your sense of self-worth from how your performance measures up to other people's, you will dishonor God and bring his judgment. This is the driving point of the parable. The man, the, the Pharisee, in his own assessment of himself, he's passed the test with flying colors. He's good to go. His life is worthy. He's righteous. But it's all just based on his assessment of himself and his assessment of the people around him. God's not a factor. The one perspective that's missing in this story is the one that matters most. For the Pharisee, good enough means better than. That's all it means. And that only works because who God is and what God desires has just slipped out of his frame. He doesn't see it at all. He reminds me actually of the guy from the old joke about the two friends out hiking who run into a grizzly bear. You guys remember this joke? It's basically part of the public domain at this point. It, it, one friend sees the bear coming and bends down to tie his shoes. And the other friend says, what are you doing? You'll never outrun that bear. Bears can run faster than you can. And the first friend simply says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Faster than is fast enough. Better than that guy is how the Pharisee measures righteousness. But that's just a standard he set up for himself. That's just a game that he rigged so that he always wins. The standard that matters, friends, the only standard that matters is God's. And that's the shock waiting on this Pharisee, according to Jesus. Jesus says, the punchline of the parable, verse 14. This man went down to his house justified, speaking of the tax collector, rather than the other. The Pharisee, in other words, goes down to his house not justified, not validated, not worthy. He doesn't measure up after all. And in fact, Jesus says in verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. 
It's as if this Pharisee has been the guy driving 80 on the interstate feeling fine because there's a line passing him at 90 to his left. The guy who thinks I'm covered just so long as I'm not the fastest one, right? As long as those guys are more egregiously offending this speed limit than me, I'm good. But when he gets pulled over, learns that, he, that that isn't actually what matters. That he'll be judged on the standard set by the authorities who have the right to set it where they choose. Friends, do not make this mistake. Please do not make this mistake. You're not wrong to want a life that measures up. A life that will count, that'll be something. That is a basic human desire you won't ever be able to escape. But the only standard that matters is God's. He made you. He's the source of every breath you've ever taken. He defines what is good and what is not. And he's the one who will uphold perfect justice far beyond any that we've ever seen in this broken and fallen and unjust world. If you trust yourself that you are righteous and if you're confident because of how you stack up against other people on the standards that matter to you, you will not stand before him. There is no future in self-reliance. It's a deadly trap. The shock of this parable is that you actually don't have to stand on your own if you choose not to. We've seen the deadly trap of self-reliance. I want to show you now the life-giving freedom of God's mercy. Look with me at the other character in this story, the tax collector. Point by point, this guy stands out in a stark contrast to the Pharisee. That's what Jesus means us to do, to set them up side by side and compare them point by point and see where we end up. Where the Pharisees were famous for their piety, where the, where the Pharisees were known for and respected for their, their goodness, tax collectors were notorious villains in Israel. And they deserved it. They were collaborators. The tax collectors were the ones who, who saw the Roman occupation as an opportunity for themselves. They worked with the Roman Empire to help them keep their death grip on their own people. And even worse than that, it's not like they just, just implemented the laws that Rome gave them, the standards Rome set, because their hands were tied, somebody had to do it, may as well be me. No, no, no they, they took their position as those responsible to take money and give it on to the Roman Empire, as a chance to skim more for themselves off the top. It's like their own people are here bleeding out and they come pick their pockets. They see the oppression of their own people as an opportunity for themselves. That's who this guy was. Hated and despised. That's why Jesus chooses him to make his point. The tax collector enters the temple, verse 13. And like the Pharisee, he stands far off, but where the Pharisee stood by himself above everyone else, the tax collector stands by himself because he's not worthy of anyone's company, not after what he's done. The Pharisee looks around, sizing everybody up. The tax collector just looks at the ground, would not even lift his eyes to heaven 
Verse 13. And where the Pharisee opens his mouth and speaks only of his qualifications, asking for nothing, needing nothing, the tax collector brings nothing to God but a desperate prayer. He does his business with God alone and he has only one move. Verse 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The shock of the parable is that this is the prayer God hears. This, Jesus says in verse 14, is the man who goes down to his house justified. How can this be? See, right here, friends, right here we have to watch ourselves and move really carefully to make sure that we feel the weight that Jesus intends to land on us through this parable. See, see, we here and now, we're predisposed to see this Pharisee as the bad guy. For those of us who grew up in church or reading the Bibles, we know the Pharisees are always the bad guys in Jesus' stories. We know that. And even if, you, even if you're meeting this Pharisee for the first time today and don't know anything about what a Pharisee is, my guess is, because we live where and when we do, that you don't like this guy because we tend not to like people who are full of themselves. We prefer honesty, authenticity, and, and, and an honest accounting of our own brokenness. Nobody wants to be around somebody who thinks that he's the best at everything. So we're, we're, we're hardwired not to like this Pharisee. But at this time, when Jesus told this story, that's not how Pharisees are viewed at all. They were the standard that people looked up to. They would have been the standard that somebody like this tax collector right here looked up to. So try to place yourself for just a moment in the shoes of this tax collector Entering the temple, the same temple in which this sparkling, clean-looking Pharisee offers his prayer to God and having the courage to muster up the strength to pray yourself. See, this tax collector knows what the law says and he knows what he's been. The list of qualifications the Pharisee throws out is actually a pretty good list of the tax collector's failures. Extortion? Yep. Unjust? Absolutely. He is the tax collector that the Pharisee is not. And though he doesn't say anything about whether he's been fasting or tithing, I mean, a guy who makes his money pilfering from his own hard-up people is probably not a guy who's been big on self-denial. Now he sees it. His life has been about him. And he knows that the righteous belong in God's kingdom, not guys like him. And for him, it's already too late to climb up on top of that pedestal where that Pharisee stands above him. If that guy up there is my standard, this tax collector would have thought, I've already lost. I wonder if you can relate to that. Maybe when you look around the room even now, even here in this room, I wonder if what you see are cleaned up church people with perfect marriages and perfect kids and perfectly clean houses and whatever else, and you know that's not you. Maybe you haven't exactly exploited anyone, but you know you've used your money selfishly. Maybe your marriage is barely hanging on by a thread, even right now. Maybe you have committed adultery. Maybe you haven't yet committed adultery, but 
You're hiding a pornography habit you can't bear to open up about. And maybe knowing yourself like you do, you look around and wonder, compared to all these good people here, what right do I have to be here? Friend, if you're not yet a Christian, I hope that this parable has challenged your expectations about what God is like. It is so easy to assume. I think the most natural thing is to assume that if there's a God there, his love is given out as a reward for our obedience to him. We offer to him what he requires and then he rewards us for it. That's how our world works. Honestly, that's how most religions in the world work. And maybe you've known Christians who've talked about God like that too. But the point of Jesus' parables, from one parable to the next, the point of these parables has consistently been that God is nothing like what we'd expect. It's not wrong to assume that obedience to him is important. It is. He is worth obedience. He, he deserves it. And every one of us has neglected to give him the honor and the trust that he deserves. But he is not waiting on you to make up for that. He isn't sitting back in judgment mode until you can bring him some sort of compensation like this Pharisee here. He's not waiting on you to show up and say, well, God, here it is. Here's what I've brought you. You're welcome. Nice doing business with you. His love is no crown placed on the head of the victor. He exalts the humble. And that means that right now, there is nothing standing between you and the righteousness, the justification that you crave except your willingness to ask God for mercy. The prayer of the tax collector is the only prayer you need right now. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Because right here in this, in this parable, Jesus has taken us into the beating heart of the gospel. Which is to say, he's preparing us in this parable before, before he gets to the cross at the end of the story. He's already preparing us to understand what he has come here to do. He came so that the prayer of the tax collector could be answered. God, have mercy on me. How? God's standards matter. Righteousness matters. I'm not righteous. Jesus says this guy with nothing to his name except his sin goes home justified. How does that work? It works because Jesus himself came not to fight some battle against the Roman Empire, not to show basically good people how to be a little bit better. He, he came, as he himself puts it, one chapter later in a conversation with a real-life tax collector named Zacchaeus. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. He came to trade his life for yours. 
He came to pay the cost of your sin through his blood to give you the perfect sparkling worthiness of his life as your own. Jesus is God's answer to every prayer for mercy. And because of him, your prayer for mercy will be answered today if you will only ask it of him. And my Christian friends, this prayer right here never grows old, does it? You needed this prayer the first day you believed. You need this prayer today and you will need this prayer with your dying breath. There will never be a time when we are any less dependent on God's mercy than we are right now. If God is working in your life, then you're going to feel sorrow over your sin. That's going to be a real regular experience for you. In fact, the more you grow as a Christian, the more you grow to be like God, the more holy you become, then the more grieved you're going to be by your sin when you see it. You'll see what he sees there, and that's going to hurt. The sorrow that you're going to feel for the rest of your life as a Christian over the sin that you still live with each day is his gift to you to keep you humble, to protect you from trusting yourself, and don't let anyone lead you to any medicine other than this prayer right here. In Luke 18. Because this is the prayer that God always answers with Jesus, the friend of sinners, the only righteous one who gave his life so you could be righteous too. Have you stumbled this week back into old habits that you long to overcome? This is the prayer you need. God, be merciful to me. I'm still a sinner. Have you seen that you haven't made the progress you thought you'd made over sins inside your heart? This is the prayer. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I wonder if you've been convicted, even in this sermon, in these brief minutes we've had together, about your posture toward the flaws of other people or seen how much you really do in your heart want to stand above the crowd on your own two feet if you feel that right now, this is the prayer you need. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Have you been wronged by somebody else who doesn't have a clue or who feels no remorse or who can't on their own now take away the pain that they've brought into your life? Is that what you're feeling today? This right here is the prayer you need. God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. This is the prayer that protects us from looking for validation anywhere else but the mercy of God. It's the prayer that protects us from the contempt of other people as if, as if, as if knocking them down a notch makes us one bit more secure. This prayer right here is the life-giving, liberating, one-of-a-kind path to a validation that won't crumble under the weight you put on it or depend on a contempt for other people that'll poison everything you touch. This prayer is freedom. So let's pray it together right now. Will you join me? Father, be merciful to us.
we are sinners with no righteousness of our own to claim. But with hearts that are hungry for the righteousness you made us for. So we ask you to meet us through Jesus Christ, your son, our only hope in life and in death. Be merciful to us in him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.